Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back 10 years, four days away from 10 years, four days shy of 10 years ago, July the 24th, 2013, originally episode 1171, called The Bright Future of Homesteading in America. thought it would be a good idea to get off the gloom and the doom that we were on for the first two rewinds this week and uh, talk a little bit about um, some things that are more optimistic looking forward. Still a little bit of a prophetic show, though, because 10 years ago I was doing this show talking about the bright f- future of homesteading. And I have to say that homesteading is probably leaps and bounds more popular today than it was 10 years ago. Some of the biggest YouTube influencers, etc., today are in this you know, homesteading, permaculture, livestock, regenerative agriculture. All of it is incredibly, incredibly uh, popular today, far more than before. In this episode, I also talk about um, some of the previous homesteading movements, the 70s and the 30s and the 60s uh, in particular, and how this time would be different. And I think that is playing out. But I, I really wanted to do this episode for you guys today, or redo this episode for you guys today, so that you could realize that as much as this was spot on 10 years ago, it's more important today. That this is how we can decentralize control over the, the, the primary resources in our lives. And that you don't need to do everything. If, if we could all do 25% of our needs, we have a totally different world that we're in, and a far more prosperous one, and a far more free one, and a far more liberated one. And with some of the doom and gloom that I talked about on Monday and Tuesday, it might be a good idea to see to those needs through your own actions. So whether you're a long-term homesteader, somebody just getting into it, or somebody going, I don't know if this is right for me, I think it'll be a good episode for you. I'm not going to have a huge new intro like I have in the other episodes this week. I think this one largely is a um, one that stands the test of time. And even though it is rooted in 2013 and looking forward, it's pretty much an evergreen episode. I don't know that this will ever not be a great episode for someone who is questioning whether or not they should be uh, homesteading uh, or someone who's asking whether or not maybe I should get into it. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and rewind back to July the 24th, 2013, episode 1171, The Bright Future Future of Homesteading in America. And remember, while these episodes are largely commercial-free, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. What I'm talking about today isn't like how. I'm not going to be doing a show on how to grow stuff or how to raise livestock or anything like that. Just the, the whole concept, and this isn't a permaculture show, though permaculture is a big part of the homesteading movement. It's only one part. There's plenty of homesteaders that don't know what permaculture is and don't care. And they never will. And that's okay. We have different applications of techniques in different situations for different motivations of different people. That's all cool. What I'm talking about is anybody... This basically said, you know what, I, I, I'm tired of being 100% reliant on the systems. Notice when I say system, I never say the system. I say the systems because there's multiple systems of dependence out there that's, that rope us in and control us. It's not one system. And if you don't get that right, you fall into a big trap because you start you don't realize how 
entwining the systems are and how how communal those systems are, right? While they're telling us to be compete with each other, like go out and compete with each other. And I'm not saying competition is bad, but while they're saying that, all the people running the systems behind the scene are practicing mutualism, right? They're all working together and we're all working to fight each other and while competition has its place, it doesn't need to be in everything that we do. Just a side note there. But that's kind of where I'm coming from is, is just anybody that said, you know what, it's time for me to do something to provide for myself. That's beyond, well, go get a good job and benefits. I don't mean that way. I mean something that involves land. Whether it's a tenth of an acre or a thousand acres, doesn't matter. Whether it's a backyard patio, doesn't matter. Whether it's four laying hens in a backyard, and that's pretty much all the person does is provide their own eggs, or whether it's somebody that's completely transformed an urban lot into a food production machine, or whether it's somebody like me in a mid-sized rural property, a couple, three acres, that's out doing geese and chickens and putting in trees and you know doing the permaculture thing, or whether it's somebody that's gone out and said, to hell with it, got a hold of a hundred acres one way or another and is, you know, raising food for market. And everything from one end of that spectrum to the other, I'm lumping in with this modern homesteading movement. Um, and as we look at that, there's a lot of people out there saying right now that all of this stuff that's going on is nothing but another cycle. It's just another cycle. It's like the 70s back to the land movement. You know, there was a big back to the land movement in the 70s. It, it, it really lasted from about 72-ish to about 76 and kind of faded away. It just really never caught fire. It lasted about half a decade, about five years. A little trail on the top and the bottom end of it because it peaked up and then fell off, right? So maybe eight years of the 70s were really part of the back to the land movement with the first couple being really weak and the last couple being really weak as it was fading away. And they're saying this is just the same thing. Well, it's not. And I could start out by explaining to you that, in my view, and paying attention to this, I saw this thing building up from, let's say, 1999 forward, but it was really kind of rocking by 2004, 2006-ish, okay? And, and by 2008, when I started this show, it was booming. Today, it's bigger than it was in 2008. It has grown from where it was booming to where it's blowing up. And it's not slowing down. There's there's no real signs that this concept of taking control of your life and having some level of control over the food you eat is going to slow down for a long time. It's not like an industry boom. It's not like a mortgage boom or a financial boom. It's It's not dependent on a single source of funding or a single thing the government or the single thing an industry is doing. What I mean by that is you can look at past booms. So there was a boom in the dot-com world. That wasn't really about the government. That was private industry. But private industry took this new vehicle and started to build companies around it that that were gathering momentum and steam and investor dollars because if you picked the right horse, you could win a lot of money, but they weren't producing anything. So eventually that boom popped, but the Internet didn't go away. But you will never see another time in history where people are betting on internet stocks just because they're internet stocks like they did from about 1996 up through 1999. You you will not see it. It will not happen. It's not going to happen ever again. And those that are still holding Yahoo stock, waiting for it to be worth $300 a share again, are wasting their time. Right? But that was tied to the concept of a new technology and a cycle 
running out. If we look at the housing boom, that was based on the government basically telling lenders, you'll loan money to anybody that asks for it. I don't care if they can't pay it back. You're going to do it anyway. Don't worry, we'll bail you out in the end. But that type of system eventually has to fail when enough people can't pay and the government can only bail so fast. This is not like that. This is not like that at all. This is so multidimensional. And it's, it's a situation where if people get more money, they can do more homesteading. If they have less money, they need to do more homesteading. So it's, it's a multi-pronged hydra and it, it, it reaches into so many different niches that it's very sustainable regardless of what happens in any one segment of society. It almost makes you wonder how we lost it. More on that in a bit. But the other thing we have to take a look at is what the 70s movement really was. It was a cycle of things. And it was a cycle of things that actually went on and has happened many times in America. There's been many times in America that factory workers have gone back to the fields by choice or by necessity. But there were two big movements that preceded this and in previous decades. One was very short behind it. It was a 60s movement. It was largely hippie-driven, and some of the hippie stuff was still driving in the 70s, but the 60s movement was really hippie-driven. There was a little bit of urbanized stuff going on in the 60s and 70s. The whole big thing with the 60s and 70s started with actually a lot in New York City. I can't remember the guy's name, but that was kind of the big thing that, like, spurt, look what could be done. But the 70s was really about escape, escaping the man, right? Not independence from the system, escaping the man, to get away. And it went largely rural. There were, you know, hippie commune type things and stuff like that. And when anybody decided, even if they weren't hippie-ish and they wanted to do it, what they did is they said, I gotta get out of the city. I gotta get out of the city. I gotta get out of the city. That was the, the, the mentality. And it was about escape. It was about going away and no longer being a part of society. Not just independent. You understand. It's very important you understand the distinction there. People doing it today are wanting to be independent of the systems of support, yet still mostly want to be part of society as a whole. They want to be part of the community. They want to be involved with their neighbors, etc. They're not necessarily saying, i got to get a thousand miles from a city to do this. Even people that are doing it the way I am, that are semi-rural, still have these larger population centers not that far away. And they're happy to be part of them at times of their choosing, just not all the time. And some people are doing it smack dab in the middle of urban centers. okay? And everything in between all the way to the far out stuff, where the 70s was largely about get away, escape. The 30s was about survival. I, I don't know if you know history well enough to know, but we had this thing called uh, a Great Depression that started in 1929. And uh, there was a lot of people that started to grow food that had forgotten how because they needed food to eat. And it didn't take them long to figure out that certain things were cheap, and you could buy it cheap and eat it, but if you stuck a few of them in the ground, more came up, and you got that even cheaper. And we hadn't destroyed and denuded our soils, and there was a lot of, at least grandpa knew how to grow food, grow food, and a lot of times dad knew how to grow, grow food, and mom knew how to grow food. So it was a real easy transition, the skills weren't that far behind us, and there was a need. So the 30s were about survival, the 70s were about escape. And both movements, while they had some urban components, were mostly rural. It's really important to understand, not that there's not a lot of movement toward the rural today, but it's not exclusively or even the majority rural. It's everywhere, which is far more sustainable than only being rural. And here's why. How much does it cost to buy 10 acres of land? 
And how hard is it to find a job that will support the lifestyle you want that's, that's, that you can have when you're far enough away to afford 10 acres of land? It's much easier to afford, afford an acre or a half of an acre or a third of an acre in a place where, where, where people will stay out of your face and let you do what you want to do in many situations and still maintain a job. Because what we're seeing with the homesteading movement today is not people, and that was the other thing, the 70s dream was, I'm going to quit work, man, and I'm like going to move out there, and like I'm going to grow all my own food. right? That was the dream. Now, not everybody that did it wanted that, but that was largely the impetus, that I will, I will cut the tether to society as a whole, and I'll be 100% self-sufficient. This is part of what ended the movement. People would get into that situation and go, yeah, dude, this is hard. I'm talking about even the productive, hardworking hippie, right, would realize, like, this is hard. And it's not really, it's not really feasible to be 100% self-sufficient. Or if you do, you're going to work, you know, 80 hours a week and, and barely get by. And then how do you pay the property taxes? And the, the, the people that did it didn't want to really be farmers. They didn't want to farm for a living. They wanted kind of to take care of themselves more. If they sold a little bit here and there, that would be fine. And, and, and even the people that thought, well, I'll do that. I'll do the roadside stand thing. I found it was very hard to sell produce in a community where everybody had a garden. It, it, it wasn't like – it was so – when you went far away from the population center, and most people were largely self-sufficient anyway and bought whatever they needed through labor, and then you had the, in surplus what they had in surplus, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for financial exchange. So this curtailed the 70s movement, and recovery and war curtailed the 30s movement. But again, today, we don't have either one of those situations doing this. This is, this is not what's driving it. And our homesteaders today are working land from a tenth of an acre to a hundred acres and more. They don't care. People are like, I don't care where I'm at. Okay, this is what I have. This is what I'm going to do. There's been enough people that did it now. There's people with you know 700 square foot lots with, with 10 species of trees and 20 species of bushes producing berries and fruits in a, in a beautiful little backyard forest garden. And there's people that have put raised beds in every square inch. And there's people that have done everything in between. And it's been seen enough. The people are like, well, it's possible. And that, that switch that went off that told people it's possible made a lot of people that thought, well, one day I'm going to have enough money to semi-retire and move out into the country to say, I'm not waiting, I'm doing it now. And that's a fundamental difference. So what's actually driving today's movement? And there's, there's a lot of things. I'm not even going to give them all to you, but I'm going to give some of the primary ones. And you'll see that it's much broader than just escape or just survive. And when, if you want something to work, and this is a permaculture principle, and this is why I say permaculture is not just about growing food. And those of you that get on me for too many permaculture shows, if you want to run a business, if you want to manage a, a company, if you want to uh, organize a survival group, you really should understand sur the permaculture design science. Because you can understand the design science and the fundamentals of design science without ever planting a single seed or even wanting to. Again, I think you're probably going to need to eat before you need to shoot somebody, but you know your choice is yours. But the design science is sound across the board. And one of the things that we have to understand is the concept of stacking. And that's a permaculture. We stack in time. We stack in space. Okay, so like a permaculture principle for stacking in space, I can plant five things in an area that's not big enough for all five of them to be mature, but some grow slower than others. 
and as the fastest growing things mature, I remove them and use them as a yield until the last one is the one that becomes a major species in the final design. Right? That's stacking in space. But it's also stacking in time. Right? But we can also stack in function. So if I plant a tall plant of some sort, it might serve the purpose of producing a yield. That's a function. But if it also does another function, like allows something to climb on it, now it becomes a structural function. Right? If when I take a yield from it, I get, let's say, grain and silage, so I have grain for me and silage for my animals, it performs yet another function. If there's a part of it that gets really hard and woody that can be used for kindling, it performs another function. If it has some sort of beneficial effect as far as mining nutrients from the soil that can be composted and returned, it has another function. And when we stack functionality in a single element, it becomes more powerful. So you might think, well, what does that have to do with today's homesteading movement, specifically the factors driving it? The more factors driving it, the more stacking of driving reasons, the more sustainable the, the movement is. It's why it will succeed, in other words. If it's only one thing driving it, and a shift occurs that in the mind of the people doing it fixes the concern or changes the concern or fills the role, once that one driver is gone, then the movement ceases. So in the 70s, eventually we went into the 80s, right? And we went into a period of recovery from the economic problems that we had, and we went into a technology shift, and a lot of new opportunities were created, and the driver of escape became, you know, this place isn't so bad after all. So there was only one thing really, and I'm, I know there was, somebody's going to email me with a hate email letter today. I did this in the 70s, and I'm still doing it, and I wanted all of these. I know you did. I'm talking about the majority of the people in the movement. Please understand that. So once that thing's corrected, then everything that's driving it is gone. And, gee, people that are doing it are like, why am I doing this now? They might not even see it that directly, but that's what happens now. If you have multiple drivers and one or two go away or shift or are corrected if they're a problem, the other ones are still there driving the movement. Right? So that's stacking applied in a different way. And I encourage you, if you learn nothing else from me today, to learn the concept of stacking. To start asking yourself, in my business, in my life, this thing that I have... How many things does it provide for or do, or what is its relative uh, uh, purpose comp compared to other things in my life or my business? If you do that, you'll start to realize how much of the things that you could be using are being underutilized. How much power you have that you're not utilizing. It's like having a huge battery bank, but only connecting, you know, you have 10 batteries that could be interconnected, but you're only actually drawing from one, and the other nine are sitting there. And many times it is, it's a nine to one ratio if we stack. So what are the stacked drivers in today's homesteading movement? Number one is concern for the future. People are worried about the stability of the future. What will the quality of their food be like? Will they be able to afford it? Will they be able to afford land in the future if they wait? Right? Um, you know, what kind of environment will there be? So concern about the future is not just, will I have food? How good will the food be, etc. It's also, what's happening to our environment? What, 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 what's, what am I leaving behind for my children? So there's a huge concern for the future. 
unlike many past movements, where the pain was already very heavy down on the American population, or any population that's ever done this, that's gone from factory to field, and you can change the word factory to anything you want, based on the time that things were going on. This, this Again, this is a very common cycle that occurred throughout history, even in times where we thought everybody was in the field and they weren't. All right? So this this concern of the future is, is something that, generally speaking, these movements occur when the concern has become a reality. Now, you can talk about the recession from 2008 till I say it's still going on, but there's a false recovery, or from 2008 to about 2011 officially, okay, and say, well, that's the impetus. But that's not the impetus for people that were doing this in 1999, 2002, 2004, 2006. 2006, this was already a major movement. And those people doing it back then really weren't that concerned. Plus, then you're ignoring all of the people who have walked right through this recession without giving a crap about it, other than their concern for their fellow man. There are many people out there that have experienced zero impact on their quality of life during this recession. There are many people that the only thing that happened to them was they watched their 401k balance go down, it made them feel bad, then it went back up, and now they feel good. That was it. It didn't change the temperature of the water in their pool. It didn't change the, the temperature that they set their thermostat at. They didn't change their ability to take a vacation or buy a new car or buy a new house. You're listening to one of them. This recession did not affect me at all, even as a business owner, because we got together as partners in the businesses I used to run, and we fixed the businesses before the recession happened. We got rid of people that were not really doing the best job, and we were prepared for the fall. And that meant all the people that we, we kept, we were able to keep through it and come out the other side. And those people, their lives weren't hugely affected. A few people had to take a pay cut here and there, including me. But it wasn't enough to really impact our lives. And we were resilient through it. There were people that didn't even, people, people got raises during this. There were people that saw it coming and took their money out of the market. There were plenty of people out there today planting gardens, keeping chickens, etc., that have had no financial stress whatsoever yet. Many of them are back to you know, the concern about the future, but they're acting in advance. And that's very different than the way Cuba did it after the Soviet Union broke up. Or the way people in this country did it after the stock market crashed in 1929. Or the way people did this in the middle of stagflation in the 70s. Or the turmoil of the 60s. This is very, very different. There's people with no problems that are heavily involved in a modern style of homesteading, from small to large. The next driver is the quality of our food. There's never been a time where we've had more food of poorer quality ever in the history of our nation. We, we have just literally shit tons of food. We have 400-pound people that are in a state of nutritional starvation. They're not in a state of caloric starvation, but we have obese people that are literally starving. I, I, I know that's very hard for you to understand because the system has taught you that starvation means being skinny and falling over and dying and having your stomach hurt, right? That that's starvation. There's many types of starvation, okay? I can take a plant and I can give it every nutrient that it needs except one and starve it by depriving it of that nutrient and you'll watch it wither and die, even though it's getting everything else that it needs. 
human beings are not immune to this. So just because we're having humans that are on food stamps shoving down Big Macs and Ho-Hos uh, and things like that, does and, and Top Ramen and, and, and garbage food, doesn't mean that they are nutritionally fed. It just means they are calorically fed. Your body is not like a car. Even And sadly, that's what they teach you in school today. I remember when I was a kid in school, they said, your body's like a car, it needs fuel. So if you if you are going to run you know, on, on 1,800 calories a day, you need 1,800 calories in. And then a little talk about nutrition in the food group and the, the food pyramid, which is now a plate. We paid $9 million, by the way, to turn the pyramid into a plate. So we paid $9 million to go from a triangle to a circle. But that's just an aside. All right, let's not get bogged down there. Um, but it's, it's so far beyond the junk food. We're at a point now where most of the food you buy is of poor quality. Most of the fruits and vegetables we have do not have the minerals and nutrients in them that they did even 20 years ago when the soils were already largely depleted. We, we have fructose corn syrup in just about everything that you can think of. There's all kinds of toxins and, and problems associated with that. Uh, we, we've increased the gluten content in wheat to the point where more and more people experience celiac, celiac disease and various levels of gluten intolerance. Uh, allergies are, are worse than they ever have been. Autoimmune has been worse than it ever is. And we, we, you know, there's enough we can say about the pharmaceutical injury, industry being a culprit, but the food industry is, is universal and plenty of people have these problems that aren't on a bunch of medications or had the problems before they ended up on medications. Food's the common root. So we know the quality of the food is poor, even though the quantity of the food is high. That's driving people to say, well, what can I do to improve the quality of my food instead of going to Whole Foods and paying three times as much for food that may be just as nutrient deficient and the only advantage is it's simply free of the toxins? It may be. So that's a driver, the quality of food. The next is the environmental damage of big agriculture. People are starting to understand this. People are starting to really get this. Like, they're looking at farm fields, and they're watching a farmer plow a field, and they're watching the dust fly and go, that doesn't look like all the pretty pictures they put in the advertisements. What's, and and they start, they're starting to see the, you know, the results of these feedlots, the way that chickens are treated. They're seeing chicken trucks go down. There. All of this thing is coming to public knowledge. So there's a huge amount of, of cruelty in our agricultural system, and a huge amount of damage to our land. And environmentalism has been dealt a huge blow by the global warming movement. I'm not going to go deep into this today, but I'm going to tell you the truth, is that global warming is the worst thing that's ever happened to environmentalism. Because it immediately made a universal problem a political issue. And whether the climate gets warmer or colder shouldn't have anything to do with us cleaning up the environment. We, we shouldn't even be worried about CO2 in this. If you want to reduce the use of fossil fuels, there's a thousand reasons that we can provide pollution from fossil fuels that have nothing to do with the air you exhale, the molecule that you exhale. So there's this big move toward environmentalism. What we need is for people to start asking, like, What's the totality of environmental damage? And I think people are starting to do that. And if people will stop making carbon the villain, then a lot of the people that are on what you would call the other side of the line will start to come over to your side of fixing things. Because if, 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 if this is, you want to shut down half the people 
when you're trying to clean up an environmental issue, bring up CO2. And they'll just shut down. So stop doing it. Stop doing it. Stop freaking doing it because it's not the bigger issue. You know, you want to stop coal and, and, and how much coal we use? Try mercury and sulfur. You want to stop oil? Try dioxins and trioxins. Okay? There's so many things. And here's a question for you. What the hell ever happened to Woodsy the Owl? Right? Remember, give a hoot, don't pollute. How did, how did pick up your trash, Johnny, become your parents are evil for driving an SUV? It's divisive. But the environmental damage is becoming evident. And even people that are divided by this issue are beginning to realize, you know what, I'll work with the other side because we have a common problem. And even if they're misguided about what they think is the real biggest concern, the solutions are very similar. The solutions are very similar. And modern agriculture is a huge problem environmentally. Massive. From the toxins they're doing, the runoff, the depletion of the aquifers. I mean, there are so many reasons that Big Ag is a polluter that it, it, it's, it's undeniable to anybody. And I'll tell you why I get pissed off about the global warming thing. There's so many people out there that have become so shut down on fixing anything because they're tired of hearing bullshit that it's their fault that they drive a car from somebody else who drives a car too. I had a person tell me, I don't believe in environmentalism. What the hell do you mean you don't believe in it? Like like saying you don't believe in God, you know? Right? Well, no, no, I don't believe in it at all. Okay, do you think we should, you know, back a dump truck full of garbage up and dump it in your backyard? No, why not? That would be pollution. So you're an environmentalist. No. Well, what do you mean you're not an environmentalist? I don't, and what it came down to is that anything with the word attached to it had gotten into this hot p political issue. You people that are on the other side of this thing that really want to fix the problems, not the yuppie ass clown in a, in a Prius that thinks that's the solution. I don't care about that person. But you people that really want solutions, that are on the, it's all carbon bandwagon, you know what? You're destroying the planet as much as the person with the Hummer. Because every single person you shut down, okay, every single person you shut down on this issue is one person that could be working for a solution that doesn't need to hear from you that they're an evil denier of climate change. Right? And I could go give you a million reasons why I believe the climate's changing, I believe that human beings are having an impact on it, and I believe the impact of CO2 is 1% of the human impact. They would involve things like desertification. You want to change the climate? Take arable land and turn it into freaking desert. You'll change the freaking climate. Okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very simple thing. And then there's natural fluctuations. I didn't want to go into this tangent today, but at some point it pisses me off. And you can't get into the environmental damage debate or even the, the, the need for environmental recovery without having this discussion today because people have made it the only thing. And this is all I want you to do. If you disagree with me on this issue, take our disagreement right now. Put it in a little box and set it up on the shelf. And just say, Jack and I disagree about the impact of CO2 on climate change. Just, just put it on the shelf. I'll put it on the shelf too. We've both done that. Let's not talk about it at all for the rest of this show. Now, it's on the shelf. And let's pretend we've agreed that no one ever even discovered it.
It never, whether it's happening or not, we don't know about it. It's shelved. And let's pretend that you don't think it's a problem because you don't even know about the theory. Would you really look around and say, well, everything's fine now? There's nothing to be fixed. There's no damage to our environment. There's no pollution. There's nothing that needs to be cleaned up. There's no land that needs to be reclamated. There's no, there's no harm being done to, to our future and our planet. Or would you go, man, all this other crap still needs to get done. There you go. All right. Sorry about the tangent. But yes, that's a big issue driving this from people on both sides. And all I'm suggesting is if you're on one side, you don't polarize the other. Focus on what we all agree on. Show somebody a coal slush bank. Show somebody an oxidized creek where the water is orange and the fish are dead. Show somebody the results of mercury testing of a tuna. Show somebody a boreal forest being stripped clean to mine tar sands. And 80 to 90% of people will go, that's a problem. So if you can get 80 to 90% of people to agree with fixing the problem, don't, don't lose half of them along the way with something that we don't know. The debate is not over. Right? It's not a fact. It's a theory. There's scientific law and theory. That's a theory. It's a theory. And we don't need it to fix the problem. Next concern and next driver, GMOs. GMOs may be one of the biggest drivers Uh, for people to produce their own food. People don't want it. And the stance of industry and government is, well, you're getting it, and it's good for you, and shut up and eat it. And that might be, in modern time, the biggest driver, the biggest thing. And I don't think that it's the only thing. I think, it, But I think it's the, the main thing that makes people go, I need to do something about my food. And then they, as, they, as they start to do it, they learn about all the other things. So GMO is a huge driver. Next thing is... I think society as a whole lost a lot through generations X and Y. I'm a Gen Xer. The young people behind me are called Gen Y, and then the young folks behind them are called the Internet Natives. And we had the tweeners uh, before me, and then we had the baby boom generation, the World War II generation. And I think during the, 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 the days, the heyday of Gen X, and moving into the heyday of Gen Y, and all of that period in between, Even the people from the prior generations lost a lot. They lost a lot of connection to the land, to their food, and understanding of things. Um, and I think there's this huge desire now to get it back. It's not so much just being able to support yourself and not be tethered to the systems, but why don't we know how to do this? We have Gen Xers going, why didn't my parents teach us this? And we have you know, Gen X's parents going, why, why did I forget how to do this? So it's very multi-generational because of that. It's not just the Gen X and Gen Y that are the young people and middle-aged people like myself that are going back to this concept. Old people and even very, very young people are choosing to do this. And it's because eventually as we looked back across the horizon, we went, how did we lose so much? And what, if you want somebody to fight for something that they've never had, tell them what it was like when people did and make them realize they were they had a right to it too and it was lost. And they'll go on a quest to get it back. 
But they have to feel the loss, and I think the loss is now being felt. Um, I think it's also because there's become there's be, there's there's beginning to be a shift in a fundamental understanding of wealth. People are becoming educated to the monetary system. They're figuring out how they've been misled. There a lot of people that have put you know a hundred grand or more into student loans are realizing it was all a lie. And, you know, I'm not making excuses for anybody. All I'm saying is that when you start to realize that as you look around, there's so many things you were told were what made you wealthy. They were credit cards and college degrees and certain jobs. And you, you start to look around and go, how come all these people that did what they were told don't look like they're wealthy? Or if they do, they also look miserable. Shouldn't they be happy with their success? And people are starting to realize, well, maybe that, maybe that a number is not really what defines wealth. It's, it's a lifestyle. And that if a person is a happy, healthy person that has everything they need and some or most of what they want, that that person's wealthy. And as you start to look for answers to that, at least some of the answers lie in making your home into a producer versus a consumer. And as soon as you start thinking that way, you head down the modern homesteading path. The next is a new understanding of what is actually beautiful. This country has been sold alive for a hundred years that beautiful is a well-manicured lawn with perfectly edged grass along the sidewalk and one tree in the middle of the front yard and a white picket fence. And that's beautiful. And people are starting to realize, wait a minute, if that's what beautiful is, why do we all take a couple weeks a year and generally go somewhere that looks nothing like that. How many people vacation and go live in a house with a white picket fence and a manicured lawn? People go to the mountains, they go camping, they go to beaches, they go to wild places. And they stand and they look and they go, how beautiful this is. And now you have five generations of people who have been taught that the front yard with the manicured flower bed is what beautiful is, all collectively going, wait a minute, this. what if we could bring a little bit of that wild beauty into our backyards, or even our front yards, if we're not living in an HOA? And when people are given enough time, before they're stopped by government or HOAs or whatever, to get a system established, and then people see it, they go, this is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with it. I want this too. And that shift in what we consider beautiful and acceptable is a big driver. And another one is a desire to regain control in our lives. This is a huge, huge thing. And when people start to make this shift, it feels very good. It feels very empowering. The person that just has an outdoor herb garden on the back patio of an apartment has the same type of feeling as the homesteader on a quarter-acre lot that keeps four hens that goes out and picks up eggs every day. It's the same feeling. It might be in different degrees, but it's the same feeling. It's, this is mine, and I created it. I actually partnered with nature to create it. And this will be here no matter what. And that is power. And power is addictive. And there's two types of power. And they're both addictive. 
And one is very, very detrimental to the soul, the psyche, and general society. And the other one is very beneficial. There is power over others that is very addictive. And it explains many of the things that corporations and governments do that victimize the people they claim to serve and protect. And that is one type of power. And then there's the other type. There's power over oneself. This is also addictive, but it's a very positive addiction. It's personalized power. And it harms no one. Because it, it creates self-control. And that is a massive driver. And there is nothing you can do to stop it once it's felt. And when the person didn't run away, or wasn't just trying to survive, and they make this shift... When they didn't have to, they actually feel the power. Whereas when a person ran away and thought, in the 70s, I'll just go get this piece of land out in the middle of nowhere, and it's harder than they expected, they don't feel empowered, they feel defeated. And when they're going to starve if this year's crop of peas doesn't make it through summer, they don't feel empowered, they feel on the knife's edge. But when they choose it, chinks the armor of fear, gets inside, and lights the flame of power. That's why this, a huge reason why this will be sustained. And I want to kind of move into things the, that will sustain the movement, not just what's driving it now, but what will sustain it. Number one is the I can do this almost anywhere mentality. This is something that did not exist in the 30s, in the 70s, in the 60s, and in prior movements. There was always a feeling of a need to go get a big piece of land somewhere. Even though there were pioneers into these small spaces. And there's some cool books and stuff out from the 60s and 70s and stuff like that. But it really wasn't generally accepted that you can do this anywhere then. The biggest one though, and I've had a hard time holding off this long, and I was going to kind of hold off till the end for the big finish, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now because I have to, because um, it, it's so important that we understand that this dynamic is here and it was never here before as the internet. The technology marvel that is the Internet and a computer in almost every home in America and a connection to others around the country and around the world, something that seems as divorced from homesteading as possible, is the biggest driver and it is the biggest reason will sustain the movement. Think about a lot of things I've said so far about all the pioneers in small space permaculture and small space homesteading. Would you have even known they existed without the Internet? See, before it would be up to your local newspaper or the local news station or the, you know, the nightly news people whether or not you got to know about that. And they would decide whether you wanted to know about that. And let me explain something to you. If they have a choice between getting you upset and starting a racial war in this country or telling you about somebody that's working hard to provide for their family with a little backyard homestead, guess which one they're going to cover that night? The gatekeepers. The gatekeepers of society are dying, and most of them are dead. They focus on things like the Trayvon Martin case because it's the only thing that they can cover in ways that alternative media cannot. They can get the press passed. They can get into the court. They can make it sound like a freaking prize fight between the lawyers. They can do that. They can turn it into reality television. But when it comes to all the other things that people really want to know about, they are irrelevant dinosaurs, and they have already been hit by the giant meteor. They're 
They're, if the ones that aren't dead are so sick, they have no hope for recovery. They don't. They're dead. The major news networks are irrelevant. So you can now decide what you want to know, and you can focus on what you actually care about. They don't get to tell you what you care about, tell you what your questions are, and give you the answer any freaking more. The Internet, I believe, was conceived by our government. Let's go ahead and get this thing going, because imagine how much data we can collect on people and how much control we can exert, and they did get some of that out of it. But what screwed them up was they had no idea what would really happen. They didn't realize that it would be a much harder thing to make two kids hate each other because of their income status or their, their race when they could talk to each other from a thousand or ten thousand miles away. They didn't understand how quickly we would move from chat boards to video to social media to messaging, to photo sharing, to all of the things now that allow people to see completely into the lives of other people voluntarily. So today, when somebody does something that would have been suppressed in the past, it's immediately known by anybody that has an interest. You want to know how to build a hood culture mound? Go to YouTube. Five years ago, Paul Wheaton had a video or two up about it. Today, there's thousands of videos. Dozens of ways that it's been done, including whether it worked or not, and what went wrong, and what went right. You want to keep chickens? Go to YouTube. You know? You want support from other chicken owners? Go to BackyardChickens.com. Go to Facebook. Go. I mean, whatever you want to do, there's tons of people doing it already that will tell you what they did, how it works, whether it doesn't work, what failed. It's the Internet. They'll never suppress this thing again. They can't. Look at Julie Bass, where they tried to throw her in jail because she wouldn't get rid of her front yard garden. Eventually, the city just said, you know, we're not going to do We're just going to let this alone. Why? Because, like, tens of thousands of people focused on one little town and said, what are you doing? Please tell me how that would have happened without the Internet. If you can think of something that's really inspired you, whether it's something I've done or somebody else has done with homesteading, If you look at something and go, that is really awesome, and I want to do a little bit of that in my own backyard, ask yourself the question, would you know about it without the Internet? And those that bash the Internet today don't get, it's just a tool. It can be used for evil, it can be used for good. And when it comes to spurring on and sustaining this movement, it's a very, very good thing. The next thing is, and it's because of the Internet, opposition will strengthen the movement. Let's say you had a little town in New Jersey somewhere. And the residents of that town started looking at things and saying, you know what, we, we, we have this law that says we can't keep chickens. It's stupid. They're little birds. I mean, a chicken doesn't crap as much as a dog. Oh, it stinks. Well, you know what, four chickens produce a lot less poo than one Great Dane. The Great Dane's acceptable, the chickens are not. The Great Dane is a consumer, the chicken is a producer. The chicken has behaviors that can be managed. We can get eggs out of the chicken when it no longer lays eggs. It can grow. We can take it as a meat yield. If I don't want it as a meat yield, there's plenty of people that will take it as a meat yield. There's no real problem here. So why can't we have them? So they decide they want chickens. And they start a little petition. And they get enough support to get into a town meeting. The town council says, we don't want chickens. Go away. The yuppies and the uppity people and the business owners that make all the decisions for that town, that tell everybody to go pound sand, just say, go away. 
They might be able to swing the elections, but it's probably not a big enough issue, so the town council will mainly stay in place, and even if they get replaced, they'll get replaced by people that are just going to follow the status quo, and there's not a lot of leverage that can be brought by this little town that just wants its chickens in this little township in New Jersey. Until the internet came along. <laughs> Then, all of the ridiculousness of the opposition becomes known. And in some instances, these little battles become a focal point, and a bunch of us get together and go, you know what, I can't fix every problem, I can't take on every battle, but this is one we will jointly support, and we'll go in and we'll kick ass. We'll get attorneys for these people, we'll do a legal defense, whatever it is we need to do, we'll go do it. But there's a bigger impact. There's a bigger impact. People start going, well, why can't they? And they go, well, I don't even necessarily want to, but can I? I can't, why can't I? You want to get people to do something? Tell them they're not allowed to. And then, because of the, because of the, the, the internet coverage, because it gets circulated around, and because even the mainstream people, you know, like the, the, the Washington Compost, who I'm, uh, who I'm using for this now, want to be in the social media game, they cover it. Because they have to compete with all the bloggers. Right? So they basically have little subsections of their own websites that are just like blogs and they put these little things out and those get more coverage than their mainstream shit. So they start employing bloggers and go, well, it's just our blog thing. We don't have to worry about gatekeeping that. And then the stuff comes out. And then some of these people in the blog side get to be doing really serious journalism, but because it's a long tail situation where they don't have limited space above the fold in the paper or limited time online that the, the, you can put out as much information as you want every day, they, these journalists get to actually do what they went into journalism to do, tell the whole story. And when the whole story comes out, sometimes we see how stupid the opposition is. And that unites the troops. When you realize your opposition is ignorant, stupid, and spreading stupidity and ignorance, it fires you up. I'm putting one little news story in here today to show you how that works. Listen to the stupidity. This is from an article. I'll put a link to you. You can read the whole thing. But this is about a, a, a town, actually Arlington, Virginia, near Washington, D.C., that wants to start allowing chickens, and there's a big debate about it. I'm going to give you two bean brain, pea brains. So the first one is like a bean brain, and the next one is like a sand brain, right? It's like one grain of sand for a brain, the second one. This is one of the most racist things I've ever heard in calling somebody else a racist when I get to it. But the first one, Susan Rich says, I'm not sure why this is even an issue. Is there a shortage of free-range eggs and groceries? Can people not get their goat's milk at the store if they want it? This is a move sort of backwards to making this an agricultural area when I thought I lived in a residential one. Oh, you whiny-ass ignorant... You know what I was going to say, and I'm not even going to say it. But, <laughs> where do you hear this one? This is so freaking racist in calling someone else a racist. And I, I found today that most racist allegations today are made by racists, like the one that was made on the blog comments yesterday, and you know who you are, claiming somebody else was a racist. It was one of the most racist things ever permitted to stand on my blog. I won't go into that, though. Hennessy Harris harks back to earlier days when residents had no choice but to raise their own food on whatever plot of land they could. Encouraging people to return to those practices would be, quote, a cultural slap in the face for a number of African-American citizens in this county. 
Many people grew up poor of limited means in the South, where chickens were a source of limited sustenance, not pets, she said. Quote, they left behind the poverty and the stigma associated with those chickens, and that will take people back to those painful days, end quote. Really? We can't allow chickens because it will hurt African Americans' feelings. Do you know how stupid that is? You know how stupid that is. You know what? <laughs> Great. I want more stupid reasons to prevent people from gardening and homesteading. I, I really do. I want as many stupid reasons publicly circulated as possible in today's modern info society so that people will start to go, you know what, I've had enough of this. This is bullshit. We're just going to do it anyway. And I want, and, and the big thing is it's starting people to start these movements in their own town. They're going, I really can't do much about Arlington, Virginia. And, and some people are going, I, I really don't care. But I care about here. So I'm going to focus here. And it's amazing what 10 or 15 pissed off residents can make happen today when they really decide they want to. And that's one reason it will be sustained this time, because opposition will only make us stronger. And the opposition is not going away, and that is the dumbest, most racist thing I've heard in opposition to urban homesteading in my life. And that lady is a freaking idiot. I mean, she's not just ignorant, she's an idiot. Ignorance can be cured. Stupidity is terminal. And she is, she is, you know, she is infected with a terminal case of the dumbass. Anyway, moving on. The next thing that will sustain us is this time it's being done before an economic crisis. Again, you can look at the recession of 2008, 2012 in that range, and you can say whatever you want about it. But the reality is, as bad as they told us it was on TV, and as, as big of an impact as it had on the lives of about 9 to 10 million Americans that were heavily impacted by it, The bulk of the other 290, 300 million of us, it didn't really do anything. It might have changed the number on a financial reporting statement for a while, but it really didn't do much. If you were hit by it, I'm not belittling you. I'm just saying there's a, the majority of us, it didn't do anything to us. We felt like it did. They told us it did, but we didn't get thrown out of our houses. We, we were not unable to feed our children. We didn't do this because we had to. We did this because we wanted to, but... Worst crisis is coming, and this time the movement will be in front of it instead of chasing it. So it will be sustainability versus survival. And that's going to be key in keeping this thing going. Um, the other thing is the problems of modern society are more evident than ever. I don't think there's been a time in history where people could look at everything that's wrong out there and better understand it. Again, this goes back to the Internet. Almost everything I'm giving you today from an awareness standpoint exists because of the Internet. But when we really look at the degradation of soils, the depletion of aquifers, the overuse of chemical fertilizers, the overuse of chemical herbicides and pesticides, the chemicals in our food, the people that are fat and starving at the same time, the health problems that we have, the inability to pay the health care bill, in spite of the Affordable Care Act, which has ironically made health care more expensive than ever, for everybody. You know, when we, and we, and we start saying, well, what is the cause of this, this health? We should have the healthiest people in the world in this country. Why are we all so sick? We should have the greatest, we have so many national parks and places of beauty. Why is our environment being degraded? Why is there a dead zone 
that gets bigger every year in the Gulf of Mexico where, at, where the Mississippi dumps and it kills everything for a period of time every year. Why is that time getting larger and longer? Why do our children not know where their food comes from? Why are we being told how we have to live by people that shouldn't have that decision-making power in our lives? Why is everything that you want to do to better your life becoming either illegal or called racist? I mean, the problems are in our face so much more than any time in history. And homesteading isn't the solution, but it's one of the solutions. And it's the one most universally available to people. So it's the problems themselves that I think make the movement more sustainable. The next thing is automation and technology are going to make it easier to do. We have people working on all kinds of systems. Systems that will automate watering a garden. Systems that will automate opening a this stuff. This stuff exists. Systems that will automate the monitoring of aqua, aquaponics system. We're getting more and more automation and technology built into these systems. If you make something easy for people, they'll do it. And then there's what I call low-tech, high-tech, right? Um, what I mean by that is there's work being done now by a lot of urban homesteaders, especially in like the forest gardening, food forest world, where eventually you're going to have paint by numbers. You're going to be able to say, my yard is X by Y in dimensions. I want to focus on my backyard. I'm in this climate, this is what my neighbor's yard's like, here's my shade shadows, and it's going to plant the following. Plant X, Y, and Z this year, you know, A, B, and C next year. Cut this down in year three. Put this in in year four. And you're going to get a template, paint by numbers. This is what you do in your community, in your biosphere, in your, uh, your, 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 uh, your USDA zone, your climate type, your water this, don't water that, amend your soil with it. You will literally be able, I believe within 20 years, people will be able to simply enter a number of factors into a computer program and, and then say, I like to eat this, I don't like to eat that, I want to do this much maintenance, and basically you'll have an automated design system. That will just spit out everything that you need to know. And those systems will become smarter over time as information is fed back into them. That's not tomorrow, but that's the next two decades. And you make things that easy, and pretty much everybody's going to want it. You know, there'll be inputs like, do you have animals? Do you want animals? How many animals would you have? What kind of animals would you have? What's the slope of your property? Basically, all the things a professional designer would ask you today will become automated. And it's going to take a lot of work a lot of breeding of different species, a lot of experimentation, but there's no reason we can't get there, especially in 20 years. I think the biggest reason, though, is it's simply becoming accepted by most people. I think most people, even the ones not doing it, are very excited and happy when they hear about somebody else doing it today, which is very, very different than just a few years ago. A few years ago when I was like, yeah, we're, you know, one day we want chickens, people are like, why? Ew, they stink. When I tell people today we have chickens, they're like, can I get some eggs? They know it's better. Even if they don't want to do it, they know it's better. So it opens up people a lot more. They start to realize, well, if like five of my neighbors have chickens, I'll probably get eggs too. Right? If five of my neighbors have gardens, I'll probably get food too. So they get out of the way. See, not everybody has to get on board. We just need people to get out of the way. You know, I want to tell you a secret about society today and fixing our problems. If I take a person with the, just 
you know, just a, uh, um, 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 what do you call it, a myopic view of a single problem. That's like their only thing they want to fix. I want to fix urban sprawl. I want to fix the food deserts, right? So we got all these urban areas that are food deserts. Nothing in there provides food. They're 100% dependent upon a grocery store and low-quality food with government. I want to fix the food desert. If I want to take any problem, no matter what it is, homestead-related or not, and give you one problem and say, your job is to work on this and fix as many things about it as you can, either in your own community or the whole world, it's up to you. But work on it. The first thing that they will tell you their problem is, is they need money. They need money. If I had money, I could do this. And many times they tell you, I don't need a lot of money. I need enough money to pay my bills so I can just volunteer to do this, basically. So if I had, they don't even need money. If I had, if I had a house and I had a, a stock refrigerator and my bills were paid and I had a car and a, and a gas card, I could just exist. I could work on this problem and get a lot done. I get a job that basically the job is fix the problem. Once you get past the money issue, you know what you will quickly find to be the next thing in your way? Government. Government. It will always be government that gets in the way of fixing a problem. And it's why we need people to understand that you can't fix this problem by mandate. Any of these problems cannot be fixed by mandate. Because government is actually occupying the space that is the obstruction to the solution. Every single time... You hear about somebody actively trying to create a solution, whether it's giving away extra food to a food bank from a restaurant, and then they say, the government says, well, it might not be safe. Well, it's safe for the people to buy, but not for the people to get for free, right? No matter what, wherever you find the problem, there will be a bureaucrat attached to it. Well, what about when it's an HOA? An HOA is an independent form of government. An HOA is for the person that's such an ass clown, that they don't feel that having a city government, a county government, a state government, and a federal government is enough government in their lives, and they'd like a, a, another layer of government, please. Right? That's, that's what an HOA, an HOA is a government. If you find any place where somebody's actively working on a problem, it's government that is preventing them from doing the, all that they could be doing. It's always government. Of one shape or another, including government that is the corporatocracy. So when you see a industry preventing it, first of all, usually it's fascist because they're doing it with government. So they're using regulation. But even when they're just using money, the corporatocracy is another governing body. The reason there's high fructose corn syrup in most food in a, in a grocery store is because industry has decreed that it shall be so. If the industry got together and said, we're going to change that, they could change it to back to cane sugar like it was, or to things that are better for us, or things that are worse for us. But they're decreeing it. But the, the thing is that all governments exist solely by the approval of the governed. As bad as this government is, and, and so many of you want to believe that society isn't as bad as government, you're wrong. Right now, it is the people empowering the city, the state, the county, the corporatocracy, the plutocracy, all, every bit of government is being empowered by the governed. The average person in this country does still want someone to take care of them, they want somebody else to fix the problem, and they want easy answers to complex problems. And whatever they'll be told, they'll pick, and if, if you give them A or B, 
They'll, by their personality, choose one over the other almost every time. That's how you divide a society into Democrats and Republicans and liberals and conservatives. That's how you take an environmental issue and make it into a political issue and keep people perfectly divided. But the main way that government holds back things like community gardens, planning public spaces, urban homesteading, suburban homesteading, semi-rural homesteading, children working on farms, homeschooling, etc., is by consent of the governed. Even though voting for A or B won't change things very much, it's still consent that we allow ourselves to be limited to A and B and that we let ourselves be misled. If you want urban homesteading, suburban homesteading, modern homesteading, all of it to go forward, the biggest thing you need is acceptance by most of the people. The minute most of the people in this country choose to accept it, whether they do it or not, they just choose to accept it, it's over. The governing will no longer be able to control the governed because the consent will be removed. The consent of oppression of a lady with a chicken because of fear that a chicken will make us sick or a chicken will stink. As soon as a person begins to accept, no, they won't. No, they won't. And no, they won't. Huh. Well, that's a bunch of bullshit. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to get involved, but I'm not going to oppose this anymore. It's very powerful. Most powerful weapon of the American people in response to excess authority is apathy. When you don't care what they want anymore, and you only care what your fellow citizens want, it disempowers those in control. And that's something that's happening. Very broad, widespread acceptance of things like forest gardening, and community gardens, and church gardens, and homesteading type things across society. Yes, there's the little blocks of Wisteria Lane with people that have their heads so far up their own ass, they'll never see it. But there's more of us than there are of them. And every day, people leave even that. People walk away from even that and realize how stupid it is. People stop caring about keeping up with Kardashians. Every day it happens. More and more irrelevant. The mainstream media, the mainstream government, more and more irrelevant every day as people grab onto what's real. And because of this, I believe that everybody will do at least a bit of home studying in the coming years. I believe that it'll be very unusual for people to not at least have a few pots of herbs that they're pulling to cook from. That it'll be very unusual to go through an entire neighborhood and not see a couple vegetable gardens, at least in backyards. It'll become very much the norm that everybody will do a little bit. And I think it'll transform society. It won't make us a utopia. It won't make all of our problems go away. But we will talk to each other again. We will start to know our neighbors on a first-name basis again. Baskets of fruit and nuts will be exchanged over fences instead of basket cases of fruits and nuts explaining why it can't happen. It's going to happen. And as society moves into more and more problems, people will seek greater solutions. And I want to talk about what this would really mean. I, there's another term out there that I think we should just stop using. I think it's a stupid term, and I think it's a very polarizing term, and I think it's a, another term that people use to take people that would otherwise be your ally and turn them into your enemy or your opposition. That term is social justice. That is one of the most, for, for, for half people in society, that is one of the most infuriating terms they'll ever hear. Social justice 
So the person that busts their ass and worked hard for what they have, and you want to take the fruits of their labor and redistribute it to someone else so that that person can have social justice implies that the person you're taking from has done the other person wrong. Justice is to be administered when a wrong has been done at the expense of the one who has done the wronging. Okay, Not at the expense of the person who was either helping or neutral in the problem. So you have a system where government and corporatocracy have victimized society at all layers. And then you have a social justice mindset of taking from your fellow citizen to right the wrong done by the corporatocracy, the plutocracy, and the bureaucracy. And you wonder why the word is so inflammatory for so many people. If you used a different word or a different description, most of the people that are sick of that word would be right on board helping you, working right next to you. The reality is we do have inequity in this country. And we don't need to be working for social justice. We need to be working for the common good of our people and our citizens. We don't need to call it anything. There doesn't need to be a unifying brand name for putting community gardens into blighted areas or reclaiming parts of our cities or helping children who are not educated become educated. This isn't social justice. It's running a decent society. But the person that started the race argument yesterday for no good reason other because they're an ass clown did lead to a, a productive conversation. Somebody came on the blog after this and said, "This is we were talking about how, and, and this is true, whether you want to accept it or not, there's certain jobs in this country that Americans do not want to do and won't do. Picking oranges is a good example. If you've seen the Morgan Spurlock Inside Man where he goes and picks oranges, you'll see why. And, and what this person said is, if we didn't have a welfare state where people had to work or starve, then people would go do this work. That's a little bit true. That's a little bit true. But let's say you started a, a, an orange orchard right now in Florida. And you said, I'm going to pay $50 an hour to pick oranges. Yeah, there'll be a production requirement, but it, it won't even be that high. It won't be anywhere near what people are having to meet now to make $10 an hour. But, I mean, you can't just sit there for $50. You have to actually pick oranges at a reasonable rate, but I'll pay you $50 an hour to pick oranges. You'll have to come to Florida right now uh, for about three weeks and then go somewhere else and do something else with your job. But I'll pay $50 an hour. I'll even pay for your plane ticket, Jack, to fly here from Texas and do the job. And, uh, and I'll, I'll give you a place to stay while you're here that's better than where all the people that do this type of work right now stay. This is the best deal out there. And you'll have full coverage of health care while you have the job anyway for those three weeks. And there's probably other jobs just like this to pay just as well that you can go to next. Will you come out here and pick oranges for me, Jack? I'd say hell no. He said, well, I'll pay you $100 an hour. I'd say hell no. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I'd do it for $100 an hour, but it's only three weeks. You've got to find another job. You got to go to Florida to do it. And if you live in Florida, you have to go to California to do it, just to make it fair for everybody. Would you really want that job? Now, now the job actually pays somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five dollars an hour on a day rate uh, based on an eight hour day. It pays much more, but you're going to work a lot more and you're going to live in, you're going to live in pretty shabby conditions. 
And if you don't meet your production quota, they're going to fire you. And you have to go find another place. And you're going to be traveling every couple weeks. Do you want that job? No. Okay. Now, is it because we're lazy? I, I posted in the blog, am I lazy? Am I la Would you classify me as lazy? When I was 15 years old, I got a backpack and I started hiking through the, the strip-mined areas of my, the mountains around my place in Pennsylvania where stuff had been laying on the ground up there since the 30s because no one cared to go get it. Old, rusted-out electric motors and stuff from the mining days. And I pulled copper with snips and pliers and packed it down, you know, 50, 60 pounds at a time in a backpack and did that all summer long so that by my 16th birthday, I could buy a car and pay the insurance for, for a full year and have enough money for gas for the next two months because that was the deal my dad said. You want me to help you buy a car, you need to be able to, to provide for the car. That's not something a lazy person. Joined the Army, spent three years in the Airborne. Got out of the Army, worked my way up through the telecommunications industry, traveled all over the state of Texas, busted my ass, broke the six-figure barrier in corporate America by the age of 28 with no college degree. After that, went off on my own, founded multiple companies, employed Over the years, hundreds of people built this show. I'm not bragging. I'm just laying it out for you. Built this show. Uh, to build this show while I was still doing other things, I had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, put together an outline, do the show in my car, work late at night to make the show into what it was so I could eventually walk away and do just this. Does that sound like a lazy person? I would have never done that job. Not because I'm afraid of the work, but because I had better opportunities. How is this going to come back to this? You've got to think about this. The reason the majority of Americans won't work the way these immigrants will is we have better opportunities than they do. Some of us, our better opportunity in our mind is to collect from the public, you know, the public trust and have a benefit transfer of the benefit of somebody else's work to us. There is that segment of society. There's also a large segment of society on these assistance programs that genuinely need some, maybe not as much as they're getting, maybe they're in a bad system that makes it easier to stay than leave, but to them, that's a better, and that's true, but that's, that's a very small segment of society as a whole. Most of us realize that we have better opportunities than traveling every three to four weeks to a different orchard or a different field to pick lettuce or tomatoes or apples or oranges or whatever it is they're just better than that. They're just better for us. So we choose what's the better option. It's not even about just how much money you can make. What's the advancement opportunity? What's the long-term career potential? In America, we realize if I really want to be in agriculture, I'm better off leasing land as a farmer than being a day laborer. We don't want to push a lawnmower in a seasonal business that shuts down for four months a year because we realize... I'm better suited doing another type of job that will either pay better or be more stable or answer, uh, offer more advancement. And those of us that do work like this, and I did some work like this in my life, see it only as a stepping stone up. And if it doesn't offer that, we don't do it. We'll, we'll kill ourselves working. We'll work until we feel like we're going to fall over and get up and do it again the next day. We'll work when we're sick. We'll work when we're hurt. We'll go away from our family, but we'll only do it because of where it's taking us. What does that mean? <sighs> to have a system that functions the way our system does now, 
where you can go buy a jug of orange juice for $3 at the grocery store, $4 at the grocery store. You need a group of people who do not have anything in their life that's a better option than doing the type of work that we just talked about. If you want a society where someone will cut your grass and edge your, edge your sidewalk for you every week for a very cheap price, you need a group of people in society that don't have a better option. It's not about money. It's not about immigration. When you say, well, if we just cut off all the welfare, then those people would get up and work, all you're saying is if we make it so there's enough people here without a better option than this menial work, they'll do it. So we need a segment of society to not have a better option. Because the people like me that are willing to do it only for a time to move up, move through that system very quickly. And you'll never have enough coming in to make it sustainable. You start to see how that plays on this, this, this twisted concept that's been called social justice. If your, your goal in social justice is to make people that are living in a way that you don't think is, is fair to have them live more like me or more like you, then you're increasing the number of people that have to have no better option to support that move up for them in society. Really think about that. And the one place it's most evident is in food production. Massive scale food production cannot be fully automated. You can't make a machine that will pick orange trees fast enough and do it by only picking the ones that need to be picked. You can run a combine through a cornfield and spit grain out one end and silage out the other end if you're planting feed corn or biofuel corn. But you ain't going to do that with sweet corn. You ain't going to do it with carrots. You certainly ain't going to do it organically with those things. So someone has to do this. Someone has to do this work. And to feed the majority of people on the backs of, the, of a very small minority of people, those people have to have no better option. You want social justice, become a homesteader and take care of yourself. And think of what it would mean if we decentralized even 25% of the food system, just a quarter of what you eat, not necessarily you produced, but just 25% of what you consumed was grown locally or at least semi-locally, or you at least harvested it. What if we started transforming our highway medians and our parks and things like that, where the average person could just go out and pick apples a couple times a year? Or berries a couple times a year. Or nuts a couple times a year. I see places around here. They're usually corporate parks, right? Where the corporate campus was planted with trees years ago. And a lot of places here in Texas, because they grow so well so fast and are such a beautiful stately tree, the people that were doing the landscaping got away from their, their prejudice against edible species and planted pecans. And a lot of them are planted like along the highways and the roads in the, you know, these edges, these nature strips. And it's really public easement. Or even if it's really not, the, the co company doesn't really care if you're not up on their campus. And in pecan season, you see lots of places around here with 10, 15 cars pulled over and people with buckets just picking up pecans. Right? No one dies. No one gets sick. No one explodes. 
No one has a magical unicorn, rainbow fairy, whatever. You know, they don't fart a rainbow and a unicorn comes out of their ass and makes these things. They go out and get them. No one tells them to. No one asks them to. No one says you're allowed to. No one says you're not allowed to. It's just it's there. And if you grow it, they will come. The squirrels take plenty. The people take plenty. A lot of it rots to the ground. And the trees just get bigger and produce more every year. Why can't we do more of that? If you take a permaculture course and you learn about swales and earthworks, you'll start driving down highways looking at wasted space on the side of the road going, holy crap, swale, 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 trees, 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 shrub, 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 solar aspect. You'll start designing it in your head. You'll start to realize we could be producing shit tons of food all over this country that would be free for the taking. People will fight over it. No, they won't. How do you know? Because it's happened many times in history. And the more you produce, the less fighting there is. In fact, in the beginning, it'll be hard to get people to go get it. That'll actually be the first challenge, getting people to open up their mind, oh, I can go get it. But if you want to take pressure off of a system right now that requires the people doing the hardest labor in the system to not have a better option, then this is the type of thing that needs to happen. It's not freaking social justice. It's common sense and an intelligent way to run a society. It's not the solution. But it's the solution. And as a survivalist, it's a solution I'm very interested in. If you're a survivalist, modern or traditional, if you're the guns and gear and MRE guy, or you're the person that's more like me that says, I, that's all important too, but I'm also worried about feeding myself and having a better life today. Times get tougher even if they don't. Whether you fully bought into my philosophy or not, this should be near and dear to your heart. Every single scenario that hits the fear button in people's lives and pushes them into the preparedness lifestyle runs up along the concept of shortage. The way to head off disasters based on shortage before they occur is to create surplus in such abundance that it's not possible to have shortage. It can't be done that to that level, but it can be done to a huge level. We, and especially in this country, there's nations like Japan and Britain where this type of talk is, is, is bantered around and embraced a lot more but a lot harder to pull off. They're islands. They're not that big. There is so much wasted land in this country. There is so much abundance in this country. There's no reason for a person in our country, whether they were born here or immigrated here or migrate here for a portion of the year, to be in this nation and have no better option than to do the type of work some of these people choose to do. There's no reason. And it's up to us to demonstrate that it can be done. Cut down a Bradford pear and plant a moon glow pear. Cut down a black ash, plant an apple tree. Cut down a fruitless mulberry and plant a freaking regular mulberry. If it's too close to your house, plant a white one. It won't stain. If you don't like mulberries, plant a freaking hazelnut tree. Plant a grapevine. Instead of planting a, a vine that climbs up onto the side of a wall that produces nothing, plant one that produces something. 
plant perennials that are edible, plant herbs that have flowers instead of pointless flowers. All of these things matter, and all of these things hearken to our survival. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living